Star Wars, The Han Solo Adventures by Brian Daly Read by Alec Bowles Han Solo at Star's End 8. Solo Captain Atwari interrupted his thoughts, leaning into the cockpit. Isn't it time we spoke? We've been here for nearly ten standard time parts and our course of action is no clearer than when we arrived. We must reach some decision, don't you agree? Han broke off, gazing out the canopy at the distant speck, barely visible, of Midas Seven. All around the Millennium Falcon rose the peaks and hills of the tiny asteroid on which she was concealed. Atwari, I don't know how Triani feel about waiting, but me, I hate it worse than anything but there's nothing else we can do. We have to sit tight and play out our hand. She wouldn't accept that. There are other courses of action, Captain. We could attempt to contact Jessa again. Her slit irises dwelled on him. Han shifted around in the pilot's seat to face her directly, so quickly that she drew back reflexively. Seeing this, he reined in his temper. We could waste all kinds of time looking for Jessa. When her operation ran, after we got hit by the IRDs, she probably dug a hole and pulled it in after her. The Falcon can cook along at .5 factors over Big L, but we still might waste a month looking for the outlaw techs and not find them. Maybe word will find its way to Jessa, or one of the prearranged blind transmissions, but we can't bank on her. I don't count on anybody but me. If I have to bust Chewie out of there alone, I'll do it. Some of the tension left her. You aren't alone, Solo Captain. My mate is there at Star's End, too. Your fight is Atwari's. She extended a slim, sharp-clawed hand. But come now. Take some food. Staring at Midas Seven cannot help and may be distracting us from solutions. He pushed himself up out of the seat, taking one more look at the distant planet. Midas Seven was a worthless rock, as worlds went, revolving around a small, unexceptional sun at the end of the wisp of stars that was the corporate sector. Stars end indeed. There'd be scant danger of anyone's happening on the authorities' secret prison facility here, unless he came looking for it specifically. Since Midas Seven had been listed in the charts as being at the outermost edge of its solar system, Han had broken into normal space nearly ten standard time parts before, deep in interstellar space, far out of sensor range. He'd come in from the opposite side of the system, entering a thick asteroid belt halfway between Midas Seven and its sun, and hunted up what he'd wanted, this jagged hunk of stone. Using his starship's engines and tractors, he'd brought the asteroid onto a new course, one that would allow him to take a long-range peek at Star's End, sure that no one there would notice the slightly unusual behavior of one tiny moat in the uncharted asteroid belt. He'd spent most of his time monitoring the planet's communications, studying it by sensors, and watching the occasional ship come and go. Monitored commo traffic had told him nothing. 
Most of it had been encrypted in codes that had resisted his computer's analyses. Plain text messages had been either mundane or meaningless. And Han suspected that at least some of them had been sent strictly for appearances' sake, to make Star's End look like an ordinary, if remote, authority installation. Now he trailed Atwari into the forward compartment. Bollocks was seated near the game board, his plastron open. Paco was stalking a jetting remote back and forth. The remote, a small globe powered by magnetic fields and repulsor power, turned, dove, climbed, and dodged unpredictably. The cub hunted it with tail twitching and quivering, obviously enjoying the game. The remote eluded him time and again, demonstrating more than its usual maneuverability. As Han watched, Paka nearly caught the globe, but it evaded his pounce at the last second. Han looked to the droid. Bollocks, are you directing that remote? The red photoreceptors trained on him. No, Captain. Max is sending information pulses to it. He's much better at anticipation and dictating random factors than I, sir. Random factors are extremely difficult concepts. Han watched the cub make a final long spring and catch the remote in midair, pulling it to the deck and rolling over and over with it in sheer delight. Then the pilot sat at the game board, which often doubled as a table, and accepted a mug of concentrate broth from a twari. They had used up fresh supplies several time parts before, and were now sustaining themselves on the Falcon's ample, if bland, emergency rations. There have been no new developments, Captain? Bollocks asked. Han presumed the droid already knew the answer, and had asked only out of a sort of programmed conversational courtesy. Bollocks had turned out to be an entertaining shipmate who could spin hours of tales and accounts of his long years' work and the many worlds he'd seen. He also had a repertoire of jokes programmed into him by a former owner and an absolutely deadpan delivery. Zero, Bollocks. Absolutely zilch. May I suggest, sir that you assemble all available information in some, recapping it. Among sentient life forms, new ideas sometimes emerge that way, I have noticed. I bet. After all, aren't most decrepit labor droids armchair philosophers? Han put his mug down, rubbing his jaw thoughtfully. Anyway, there isn't much to tote up. We're on our own. Are you sure there's no other resource? Max chirped. Don't start that again, low pockets, Han warned. Where was I? We found the place we want, minus seven, and... How high is the order of probability? Max wanted to know. Up an afterburner with the order of probability, Han snapped. If Recon said it's here, it's here. The installation has a pretty big power plant, almost fortress class. And quit interrupting, or I'll take a drill to you. Let's see. We can't hang around forever, either. Supplies are running low. What else? He scratched his forehead where the synth flesh patch had flaked away, leaving new, unscarred skin. 
This is a strictly off-limits solar system, Atwari contributed. Oh, yeah. And if we get nailed here without a mighty good alibi, they'll stick us in jail. Or whatever. He smiled at Bollocks and Blue Max. Except you boys. You they'd probably recycle into lint filters and spittoons. He dragged the toe of his boot back and forth on the deck. Not much more to it. Only that I'm not leaving this stretch of space without Chewy. Of all the things he'd mentioned, he was surest of that. He'd spent many long watches in the Falcon's cockpit, haunted by what his Wookiee partner might be undergoing. A hundred times since taking up this vigil, he'd almost cut in the ship's engines to shoot his way into Star's End and get his friend out or get blamed in the attempt. Each time, his hand had been stayed by the memory of Recon's words. But it was a constant struggle for Han to restrain his impulses. Atwari had plainly been thinking along the same lines. When the Espos came to evict us from our colony world, she said slowly, some Triani tried armed resistance. The Espos were brutal in their interrogation of prisoners, seeking the ringleaders. It was the first time I had seen anyone use the burning. You know what I refer to, Solo Captain? Han did. The burning was a torture involving the use of a blaster set at low power to scorch and sear the flesh off a prisoner, leaving only blood-smeared bone. Usually, a leg would be first, immobilizing the victim. Then the rest of the skeleton was exposed, inch by inch. Any other prisoners could be made to watch, to break their will. The burning seldom failed to obtain answers, if answers were to be had. But in Han's opinion, no being who employed such methods deserved to live. I will not leave my mate in the hands of the kind of people who would do that, Atwari was saying. We are Triani. Death, if it comes to that, is not something we fear. Not a very linear analysis, Blue Max piped up. Well, who said you'd understand it, Birdhouse? Han scoffed. Oh, I comprehend it, Captain, Max said with what Han could have sworn was a note of pride. I just said it wasn't very... He was interrupted by a beep from the Kamo monitoring suite. Han was out of his chair and halfway to the cockpit by the second beep. Just as he slid into the pilot's seat, a last... Sustained beep signaled the end of the transmission. The recorder bagged it, Han said, hitting the playback. I don't think it was encrypted. It was a clear text message, sent economically in burst. He had to slow down the playback by a five-to-one factor before it ungarbled. Two, corporate vice president Hirkin, authority facility at Star's End. The audio reconstruction began from... The Imperial Entertainers Guild. We beg the Vice Prex's indulgence and forgiveness, but the troops scheduled to stop at your location has been forced to cancel its itinerary because of transportational mishap. This office will schedule a replacement immediately when a troop with a droid of the requisite type becomes available. I am Distinguished Vice Prex, 
your abject servant. Hokor Long, secretary in charge of scheduling, Imperial Entertainers Guild. Han's fist hit the console on the last syllable. That's it! Atwari's expression mixed befuddlement with doubt of Han's soundness of mind. Solo Captain, that's what? No, no, I mean, that's us. We're in. We just got dealt a wild card. He whooped, slammed his fist in his palm, and nearly ruffled Atwari's thick mane from glee. She retreated a step. Solo Captain, has the oxygen pressure dropped too low for you? That message was about entertainers. He snorted. Where have you been all your life? He said, replacement entertainers. Don't you know what that means? Haven't you ever seen the broken-down axe the guild will throw in to fill a play date just so they can hang on to their agent's fee? Haven't you ever gone to some bash where they promised a class act? Then, at the last second, they pull a switch and stick in some... It dawned on him that they were all staring at him now. Photoreceptors and Triani eyes. He half-sobered. What else can we do? The only other thing I've thought of is to fly into Midas 7 backward so they'd think we were leaving. But this is even wilder. We can do it. Oh, they'll think we stink like Banta droppings, maybe. But they'll buy the lie. He saw Atwari was far from convinced and turned to Paka. They want entertainers. How'd you like to be an acrobat? The cub made a little bounce, a kind of strain to speak, then, frustrated, sprang into a backflip to swing upside down from an overhead control conduit by his knees and tail. Han nodded approval. What about it, Atwari? For your mate's sake, can you sing? Do magic tricks? She was nonplussed, resenting his appeal to Paka and his invocation of her mate. But she saw, too, that he was right. How many chances like this would come their way? The cub began clapping his paws for Han's attention. When he got it, Paka shook his head energetically in answer to Han's last question. Then, still hanging upside down, he put paws on hips and made wriggling motions. Han's eyebrows knit. Uh, dancer? Atwari? You're a dancer! She cuffed her cub's rump sharply. I am not, er, unskilled in the rights of my people. Han saw she was embarrassed. She riveted him with a defiant stare. And what of you, Captain Solo? With what will you astonish your audience? He was too exhilarated with the prospect of action to be dampened. Me? I'll think of something. Inspiration's my specialty. A dangerous specialty, the most dangerous of all, perhaps. What of the droid? What droid? We don't even know what kind of droid they meant. Ah, a replacement droid, remember? Han talked fast to sell his point, gesturing at Bollocks. The droid made strangely human pre-vocal sounds, a creak of astonishment, and Blue Max got out a wow as Han rattled on. We can say the guild got it wrong. So Star's End wanted a juggler or whatever, and they get a storyteller. So what? We'll tell them to go sue the Entertainers Guild. Captain Solo, sir, if you please. Bollocks finally interjected. 
With your kind permission, sir, I must point out. But Han already had his hands on the droid's weather-beaten shoulders, eyeing him artistically. Hmm. New paint, of course. And there's plenty aboard. It often pays to slap a coat on something before resale, especially if you didn't own it to begin with. Scarlet liquid gloss, I think. A five-coat job's all we have time for. And maybe some trim. Nothing flashy, no scroll work or filigree. Just some restrained silver pinstriping. Bollocks, boy, you can stop worrying about obsolescence after this, because you're going to lay them in the aisles. Their approach and planetfall were uneventful. Han had altered the drift of their captive asteroid to take them back out of range of the authority's sensors and then abandoned it. Once back in deep space, he'd made a nano-jump, barely brushing hyperspace, to emerge near Midas Seven and its two small moonlets. The Falcon identified herself, using the wavered registration obtained by Recon. To that was added the proud announcement that she was the grand touring vehicle of Madame Atuari's roving performers. Midas Seven was a place of rocky desolation, airless, its distance from its sun rendering it dim and cheerless. If anybody escaped Star's End, he'd have no place to go. The rest of the solar system was untenanted, none of its planets being hospitable to humanoid life. The Authority's installation was marked by groupings of temporary dormitories, hangars, and guard barracks, hydroponics layouts, dome sheds and weapons sites. The ground was gouged and pocked where construction of permanent subsurface facilities was in progress. But there was at least one finished structure already. In the middle of the base reared a tower like a stark, gleaming dagger. Evidently, no tunnel system had been completed yet. The whole complex was interconnected by a maze of tunnel tubes, like giant pleated hoses radiating from their boxy junction stations, a common arrangement for construction sites on airless worlds. There was only one sizable vessel on the ground, an armed Espo assault craft. There were also smaller craft and unarmed cargo lighters but Han had checked carefully for picket ships this time and was satisfied that there were none. Han, checking visually for that heavyweight power plant his sensors had spotted, failed to locate it and wondered if it might be in that tower. He shot a second look at the tower, thinking something about it looked strange. It was equipped with two heavy docking locks, one at ground level and the other near its summit, the former hooked up to a tunnel tube. He would very much have liked to run a close sweep of the place to see if he could pick up a high concentration of life forms that might include prisoners, but dared not for fear of counter-detection. Being caught probing the base would spell the end of the masquerade. He made an undistinguished approach, nothing fancy revealing none of the Falcon's hidden capabilities. The attentive snouts of turbolasers tracked the ship exactingly. 
Ground control guided the starship down, and one of the tunnel tubes snaked out. Its folded skin extended by its servo frame, its hatch-mounted mouth sealing to the Millennium Falcon's hull, swallowing the ship's lowering ramp. Han shut down the engines. Atwari, in the oversized co-pilot seat, said, I tell you one last time, Solo Captain, I don't wish to be the one to do the speaking. He brought his chair around. I'm no actor, Atwari. It'd be different if we were just going to jump in, spring the prisoners, and kiss off. But I can't cut all that chit-chat and play the role. They left the cockpit. Han was wearing a tight-cut black bodysuit, converted into a costume by the addition of epaulets, piping, shining braid, and a broad yellow sash over which he'd buckled his blaster. His boots were newly polished. Atwari was bedecked at wrists, forearms, throat, forehead, and knees with bunches of multicolored streamers, Triani attire for festivals and joyful occasions. She'd applied the exotic perfumes and formal scents of her species, using up the tiny supplies she had in her belt pouch. I'm no actress either, she reminded him as they met the others at the ramp hatch. Did you ever see a celebrity? Authority execs and their wives when they came to our world as tourists. Han snapped his fingers. That's it. Smug, dumb, and happy. Paco was costumed as his mother was, wearing the scents appropriate to a pre-adolescent male. He handed his mother and Han long, billowing metallic capes, hers coppery and his an electric blue. Han's small wardrobe had been ransacked for material for the costumes, and the capes had come from the thin, insulating layers of a tent from the ship's survival gear. The fitting, seaming, and alterations had been a problem. Han was all thumbs when it came to tailoring, and the Triani, of course, were a species who had never developed the art because they never wore anything but protective clothing. The solution had come in the form of bollocks, who had been programmed for the necessary skills, among others, while serving a regimental commander during the Clone Wars. The ramp was already down. All that remained was to open the hatch. Luck to us all, Atwari bade them softly. They piled hands, including Bollocks's cold metal ones. Then Han reached for the switch. As the hatch rolled up, Atwari was still objecting. Solo Captain, I think you ought to be the one too. At the foot of the ramp, the tunnel tube was crammed with body-armored espos brandishing heavy blasters, riot guns, gas projectors, fusion cutters, and sapper charges. Whirling, Atwari gushed. Oh, my! How thoughtful! My dears, they've sent us a god of honor! She touched up her glossy, fine-brushed mane with one hand, smiling down at the security policeman charmingly. Han wondered why he'd ever worried. The Espos, keyed up for a shootout, stared pop-eyed as she swept down the ramp, the profusion of streamers rippling and snapping behind her, her cape shimmering. Her steps sounded from the anklet chimes that Han had run off for her from shipboard materials, using his small but complete tool locker. 
At the front of the Espo ranks was a battalion commander, a major, his black swagger stick held behind his back, spine stiff, face rigid with officiousness. Atwari descended the ramp as if she were receiving the keys to the planet, waving as if to acknowledge a standing ovation. My dear, dear general, she half sang, intentionally giving the man a promotion. I'm simply beyond words. Vicepreks Hirkin is too kind, I'm sure. And to you and your gallant men, thanks from Madame Atwari and her roving performers. She swooped right up to him, ignoring the guns and bombs and other items of destruction, one hand playing with the Major's ribbons and medals, the other waving her gratitude to the massed, dumbfounded Espos. A dark, high-blood-pressure blush rose out of the Major's collar and climbed swiftly for his hairline. "'What is the meaning of this?' he sputtered. "'Are you saying you're the entertainers Vice-Prex Hirkin is expecting?' Her face showed cute confusion. To be sure. You mean word of our arrival wasn't forwarded here to Star's End? The Imperial Entertainers Guild assured me it would communicate with you. I always demand adequate advanced billing. She swept a grand gesture back up the ramp. Gentlemen, Madame Atwari presents her roving performers. First, Master Marksman, Wizard of Weaponry whose target-shooting tricks and glittering gunplay have astounded audiences everywhere. Han walked down the ramp, trying to look the part, sweating under the tunnel tube's work lights. Atwari and the others could use their real names with impunity here, since those names had never appeared in authority files. But Han's might have, and so he'd been forced into this new persona. He wasn't altogether sure he liked it now. When the Espos saw his blaster, weapons came up to cover him, and he was cautious to keep his hand away from it. But Atwari was already chattering, and to amaze and amuse you with feats of gymnastics and spellbinding acrobatics, Atwari presents her pet prodigy. Han held up a hoop he had brought down with him. It was a ring stabilizer off an old repulsor rig but he'd plated it and fitted it with an insulated hand grip and a breadboarded distortion unit. Now he thumbed a switch, and the hoop became a circle of dancing light and waves of color as the distortion unit scrambled the visible spectrum, throwing off sparks and flares. Pekka! Atwari introduced. The cub dived through the harmless light effects, bounced off the ramp, and executed a triple-forward somersault into a double twist, and ended bowing deeply to the surprised Major. Han scaled the hoop back into the ship and stepped to one side. And lastly, Atwari went on, that astonishing automaton, robotic raconteur, and machine of mirth and merriment, bollocks! And the droid clanked stiffly down the ramp, long arms swinging, somehow making it all look like a military march. Han had knocked out most of his dents and dings and applied a radiant paint job, five layers of scarlet liquid gloss, as promised, with glinting silver pinstriping, painstakingly limbed. The droid had been converted from an obsolescent into a classic, 
The mask and sunburst emblem of the Imperial Entertainers Guild embellished one side of his chest, a touch that Han had thought would raise their credibility. The Espo Major was stumped. He knew Vice Prex Hirkin was expecting a special entertainment group, but was not aware of any clearance for one's arrival. Nevertheless, the Vice Prex attached particular importance to his diversions and wouldn't take kindly to any meddling or delay. No, not kindly at all. The Major put on as cordial an expression as his gruff face could achieve. I'll notify the Vice Prex of your arrival at once, Madam, uh, Atuari? Yes, splendid. She gathered her cape for a curtsy and turned to Paka. Fetch your props, my sweet. The cub skipped back up the ramp and returned a moment later with several hoops, a balance ball, and an assortment of lesser props scrounged up aboard ship. I'll escort you to Star's End, said the Major, and I'm afraid my men will have to hold on to your master marksman's weapon. You understand, madam, standard operating procedure. Hans steeled himself and handed his blaster over butt-first to an Espo sergeant, as Atuari nodded to the Major. Of course, of course. We must never ignore the proprieties, must we? Now, my dear, dear General, if you'd be so gracious. He realized with a start that she was waiting for his arm, and extended it stiffly, his face livid. The Espos, knowing their commanding officer's temper, hid their grins carefully. They formed up a hasty honor guard as Han hit the ramp control. The ramp pulled itself up quickly, and the hatch rolled closed. They would reopen for no one but himself, Chewbacca or one of the Triani. The Major, after sending a runner ahead, led the group off through the tunnel tube maze work. They were a long walk from the tower and passed through several of the tread-mounted junction stations to the surprised gazes of black-coveralled tech controlmen. Their footsteps and Bollocks's clanking joints echoed through the tunnel tubes, and the new arrivals noticed a gravity markedly lighter than the standard G maintained on board the Millennium Falcon. Air in the tubes had the tang of hydroponics recycling, a welcome change from shipboard. They came at last to a large permanent airlock. Its outer hatch swung open at a verbal order from the Major. Han caught a quick glimpse of what he knew must be the tower's side, surrounded by the tunnel tube seal that confirmed something he'd thought he'd seen when landing. Star's End, or at least the tower's outer sheath, was molecularly bonded armor of a single piece. That made it one of the most expensive buildings, no, he corrected himself, the most expensive building Han had ever seen. Enhancing the molecular bonding of dense metals was a costly process, and doing it on this scale was something he'd simply never heard of. Inside the tower, they passed down a long, broad corridor to the central axis, which was a service core that also housed elevator banks. They were hurried along, with little chance to gawk, but they did see techs, authority execs and espos coming and going. Star's End itself didn't appear to be particularly well-manned, 
which didn't gel with the theory that it was a prison. They entered an elevator with the major and a few of his men and were whisked upward in a high-speed ride. When the elevator opened and they trailed the major out, they found themselves standing beneath the stars, which shone so brightly and were packed so tightly overhead that they seemed more like a mist of light. Then Han realized they were on top of Star's End, which was covered with a dome of transparisteel. There was an apron of bright flooring by the elevators. Beyond that began a small glen, complete with miniature streamlet, and flowers and vegetation from many worlds, landscaped down to the last bud and leaf. He could hear the sounds of birds and small animals, the hum of pollinating insects, all of which were confined to the roof garden, he assumed, by partition fields. The glen was cleverly lit by miniature sun globes of various colors. Footsteps to their right made them turn. A man came around the curve of the tower's service corps, a tall, handsome patriarch of a man. He wore superbly cut uppermost execs attire, a cutaway coat, formal vest, pleated shirt, and meticulously creased trousers, set off by a jaunty red cravat. His smile was hearty and convincing, his hair white and full, his hands clean and soft, his nails manicured and lacquered. Han instantly wanted to bop him in the skull and dump him down the elevator shaft. The man's voice was sure and melodious. Welcome to Star's End, Madame Matwari. I am Hirkin, Vice President Hirkin of the Corporate Sector Authority. Alas, you come unheralded, or I'd have greeted you with greater pomp. Atwari feigned distress. Oh, honorable sir, what shall I say? We were contacted by the Guild and asked to serve as a replacement act at the last moment, as it were. But I was told the secretary in charge of scheduling, Hokor Long, would make all arrangements. Vice Prex Hirkin smiled a charming drawing back of red lips from chalk-white teeth. Han thought how useful that smile and smooth voice must be in authority board sessions. Totally unimportant, the vice prex announced. Your appearance is thus an unexpected pleasure. Why, how gracious of you. Never fear, my kind vice prex. We'll distract you from the problems and pressures of your high office. To herself, though, Atwari swore Triani vengeance. If you've hurt my mate, I vow I'll see your living heart in my hand. Han observed that Hirkin wore at his belt a small, flat instrument, a master control unit. He assumed that the man liked to keep close watch on everything in Star's End. The unit gave him total control of his domain. I have gathered some of the most prestigious entertainers in this part of our galaxy. Atwari continued. Paka here is a premier acrobat, and I, myself, in addition to being mistress of ceremonies, perform the traditional music and ritual dance of my people. And here stands our handsome master marksman, peerless expert with firearms to amaze you, worshipful vice prex, with his trick-shooting. There was a whistling laugh and a jeering trick-shooting of what? Of his mouth, as appears likely. 
The speaker appeared behind Weisprex Hirken. He was a reptilian creature, slender and quick of movement. Weisprex Hirken chided the humanoid gently. There, there, Ull. These good folks have come a long way to relieve our tedium. He turned to Atwari. Ul Rashan is my personal bodyguard, and something of an adept with weapons himself. Perhaps a contest of some sort could be arranged later. Ul has such a droll sense of humor, don't you agree? Han was eyeing the reptile, whose bright green scales were marked with diamond patterns of red and white, and whose big black emotionless eyes were studying Han. Ul Rashan's jaw hung open a bit, exposing fangs and a restless pink tongue. Strapped to his right forearm was a pistol, a disruptor, An thought, in a spring-loaded or power-driven holster of some kind. Ul Rashan had taken up a position to Hirkin's right. Han recalled having heard the bodyguard's name before. The galaxy was filled with species, all boasting their exceptional killers. Nonetheless, some individuals rose to a kind of prominence. One of those, an assassin and gunman who, it was said, would go anywhere and slay anyone for the right price, was Ul-Rashan. Hirkin's manner had shifted to business-like demeanor. Now, that is the droid I requested, I take it? He inspected Bollocks unsmilingly, with a look that put cold danger in the air. I was most specific with the guild. I told Hokor Long precisely what sort of droid I desired and stressed that they were to send nothing else. Has Long acquainted you with my desires? Atwari swallowed, trying not to let her effusive manner slip. Of a certainty, Viceprex, he did. Hirkin threw one more skeptical look at Bollocks. Very well. Follow me. He set off, back the way he had come. Ul-Rashan at his heels. The travelers and their escort came behind. They left the garden area, coming to an amphitheater, an open expanse surrounded by banks of comfortable seats, separated by partitions of transparasteel. Automated fighting is combat at its purest, don't you agree? Hirkin said chattily. No living creature, no matter how savage, is free of the taint of self-preservation. But automata? Ah! They are without regard for themselves, existing only to follow orders and destroy. My own combat automaton is a Mark X executioner. There aren't many of them around. Has your gladiator droid ever fought one? Han's nerves were screaming. He was trying to figure out whom to jump for a weapon if, as he feared, Atwari bobbled her reply. Any show of hesitation or ignorance now would surely tip their hand to Hirkin and his men. But she improvised smoothly. No, Viceprex, not the Mark X. Han was struggling with the jarring revelation. Gladiator droid? So that was what Hirkin assumed Bollocks was. Han had known, naturally, that matching droids and other automata in combat was a fad among the wealthy and jaded. But it hadn't occurred to him that Hirkin would be among those. He put his brain into overdrive, looking for a way out. As they walked, a woman joined them, coming from what was evidently a private lift tube. 
She was short, extremely fat, and trying to hide it with expensive, well-tailored robes. Han thought she looked as if somebody had draped a drogue parachute over an escape pod. She took Hirkin's hand. The viceprex endured the gesture with ill humor. She fluttered a fat, beautifully maintained hand and chortled, Oh, darling, do we have company? Hirkin turned upon the woman a stare that, Han calculated, was enough to dissolve covalent bonding. The chubby bird brain ignored it. The viceprex gritted his teeth. No, dearest, these people have brought a new competitor for my Mark X. Madame Atwari and company, I present my lovely bride, Nira. By the way, Madame Atwari, what did you say your droid's designation is? Han jumped in. He's one of a kind, um, viceprex. We designed him ourselves and call him Annihilator. He turned to Bollocks. Bollocks looked from Han to Hirkin, then bowed. Annihilator, at your service. To destroy is to serve, exalted sir. But our troop has other acts to offer, Atwari was quick to tell Hirkin's wife. Tumbling, dancing, trick-shooting, and more. Ooh, dearest, the obese woman exclaimed, clapping her hands, sliding up against her husband. Let's see that first. I grow so tired of watching that old Mark X demolish other machinery. How boring and uncouth and crude, really. And live performers would be such a relief from those dreadful holotapes and recorded music. And we have company here so seldom. She made puckering noises, which Han took it were intended to be kisses to her husband. Han thought they sounded more like the attack of some invertebrate. He saw a chance to solve two problems at once. How to get Bollocks out of the match and how to get a look around Star's End on his own. Uh, honored Viceprex, I'm also gaffer for the troop. I have to tell you, our gladiator droid, Annihilator there, was damaged in his last match. His auxiliary management circuitry needs to be checked. If I could use your shop, it'd only take a few minutes. You and your wife could enjoy the other performances in the meantime. Herkin looked up at the stars through the dome and sighed, while his wife giggled and seconded the proposal. Very well, but make those repairs quickly, Marksman. I'm not much taken with acrobats or dancing. Sure, right. The viceprex summoned a tech supervisor who had been checking the amphitheater's systems and explained to the man what was needed. Then he offered his arm, unwillingly, to his wife. They went to find seats in the amphitheater with the Espo Major and his men ranging themselves around in a loose guard formation. Ulrashan, with a last menacing look at Han, followed along, again positioning himself near Hirkin's right. Since Paka's acrobatics and Atwari's dancing would pose no danger to the audience, Hirkin hit a control on his belt unit, and the transparasteel slabs forming the arena's walls slid away into floor slots. The viceprex and his wife settled into luxurious conform loungers. Paka readied his props. Han turned to the supervisor tech, who'd been placed at his disposal. Wait for me by the elevator. I'll get the circuit box out. Be with you in a second. The man left. 
Han, loosening his cape and sliding it from his shoulders, turned to Bollocks. Okay, open up just enough for me to get Max. The plastron opened partway. Han leaned close, shielded by the plastron halves. As he freed the computer probe, he warned, Not a sound, Max. You're supposed to be a combat control component, so no funny stuff. You're deaf and dumb as of now. As a signal that he understood, Blue Max's photoreceptor went dim. Good boy, Maxie. Han straightened, slinging the computer's shoulder strap over his arm. As Bollocks closed his chest up, Han handed his cape and gun belt over and patted the droid's freshly painted head. Hold these for me and stay loose, Bollocks. This shouldn't take long. As Han joined the tech supervisor at the elevator, Paco was just beginning a marvelous exhibition of tumbling and gymnastics. The cub was a competition-class acrobat and covered the amphitheater floor in a series of flips, twists, and cartwheels, somersaulting through a hoop he held and, perching on the balance ball, moving himself around the arena with both hands and feet. Then Atuare came in to act as thrower as Paca became a flyer. Hirkin's wife thought it all charming, ooing at the cub's prowess. Subordinate authority execs began to show up and take seats, a handful of the privileged who had been invited to see the performance. They muttered approval of Paca's agility, but stifled it when they saw their boss's deadly look of discontent. Hirkin thumbed his belt unit, a voice answered instantly. Have the Mark X readied at once. He ignored the crisp acknowledgement from the duty tech, eyed the waiting bollocks, and turned his attention back to the acrobatics. Authority Vice Prex Hirkin could be very, very patient when he wished, but wasn't in the mood now. <laughs>